Welcome to Lamenting Beliefs. I'm Cam. He's Nick. No Keith this week. And as we record, the Leafs are coming off a real tidy win over the Islanders. 3-0-1 since our last episode. It kind of doesn't feel that way. Maybe it's because the loss was to the Habs. I don't know. But uh, I suppose that there's another recent result that's weighing on you a little more than that one did. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was uh, definitely nice to see that out of the the Leafs last night after the weekend that it was in sports for me. Uh, Again, losing to the Habs always sucks, no matter how you slice it, Uh, especially when they're such an inferior team and you think that the Leafs should just be able to walk over them. And it looked like they were going to, but they didn't. Um, But yeah, Sunday, uh, the Bills laying an absolute egg against the Bengals in the AFC divisional round. Uh, that was a really, really tough watch. It was a, a real bring down moment for a, 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 and a disappointing end to a season that had such high expectations for the Bills. So yeah, uh, nice little remedy on Monday night watching the the Leafs kind of take it to the Islanders there. Not so much early on in the first period, but I thought a really, really positive response from the team after kind of. Getting shelled a little bit in that opening period, another strong performance from Samsonov really kept them in it early on. Uh, a couple big saves in that first period and throughout the rest of the game too. He's really been hot as of late. Um, and I, I think you, you kind of got to start with the the move to switch up the top two lines and go back to Mariner with Matthews and Nylander with Tavares. I thought Mariner and Matthews really kind of ignited things early on in that second period. They came out flying. They were sort of generating some chances, but... It was Nylander and Tavares took over that second period and ultimately the game with how they played in that middle frame. Uh, four points for Nylander, you know, each one of them uh, varying degrees of spectacular. And I thought Tavares was outstanding as well. It looked like the, that switch really uh, invigorated the group and got them going after, again, what was a lousy first period for them. And this is what, you know, we, we kind of have wanted to see all along and what we've talked about with, like, as far as you know switching things around we we were complaining when it was you know it seemed that Matthews and Mariner were stapled together that you know you, you just it, it seems like such a no-brainer to just switch it up there's so much talent you know see if you can spark something and it was almost assumed on my part that once you made the switch you put Nylander up there eventually the the other shoe was going to fall and and you know the, things would slow down a little bit and you you mix and match and maybe you expected it would be Matthews and Mariner who were going to pop off once you made the switch but uh, ended up being the second line that that took it home on Monday so it was it was I mean Jesus Willie's been putting in these performances it seems like almost every second night all season but uh, yeah it was it was fun to watch yeah and when it's not a performance like that it's still been a pretty damn good one from Willie just about every night this season but yeah Sheldon Keefe kind of alluded to it it was always sort of the, the plan or he always envisioned going back to this and I mean why not you, you look at what Matthews and Mariner did together last season they were arguably the best line in hockey and bunting deserves some credit for that being in that trio as well he, he's more of a complimentary piece but still an important piece to what that line is able to do but yeah just getting back to matthews and mariner it, they dominated down the stretch last season and i see some people on leafs twitter who are a little bit frustrated that they're going back to this and sticking with it after monday night uh the the, the lines in practice on tuesday had mariner and matthews uh, back together again but, I mean, you just have to look at what they've been able to accomplish playing together. And I've said it before that there's – it seems like they're almost even greater than the, the sum of their parts. And the sum of their parts is is pretty good. It's what, When you put those two guys together, there's like an, an exponential thing with their the way that they 
see the ice and the, the way that Mariner is able to set up Matthews in just, you know, really unusual places, but places that he's able to score from. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to see it, get a, another run here and see if they're able to rekindle some of that chemistry that we saw last year. Yeah, that's it. Just you got to be looking for sparks all the time. And, and, you know, if things look a little bit stale at all, you've got so much talent. It only makes sense to, to try to mix and match and try to get something going. Um, it, maybe the bigger surprise for me was was some of the, the changes in the bottom six than, than yeah. the top six like we said kind of always expected to see Matthews and Mariner reunited but um, you, you know you've got uh, Zach Aston Reese it seems like we'll, we'll come out of the lineup against the Rangers at least based on uh, Tuesday's practice lines and Bobby McMahon uh, seems to, to really be staking his claim in this lineup yeah well I, I think with good reason I, I know the the pucks haven't gone in the net for him well aside from that one that was called back against Detroit uh, but he's been an extremely effective player in what Sheldon Keefe is asking him to do so far. Uh, it, it's still a really small sample size, but you, you look at some things like he's aside from Joey Anderson, who you know another small sample size and playing in kind of sheltered minutes. Bobby McMahon's got the the best expected goals for percentage mark on the team, mind you. Again, it's only six games, but it, you look at some other numbers and. In terms of like individual shots per 60, he's leading the way for the Leafs. He's almost a full shot on goal per 60 more than Austin Matthews right now. Um, in terms of individual expected goals per 60, he, he's in fourth place behind Tavares, Matthews, and Nylander. Uh, even with the physicality, you know, maybe he's not laying out those bone crunching highlight reel hits, but he's been using his body really well. He's credited with almost 12 hits per 60 minutes of ice time. That's more than Zach Aston Reese and just behind Wayne Simmons. So like he's doing a lot of things that you want out of that role. And it's just a guy who's been, you know, using his speed, playing in straight lines, pursuing the puck and just hounding it relentlessly. And he's been able to kind of create some opportunities off of that forecheck. And it feels like it's just a matter of time before, you know, not only he pots one, but his line mates start benefiting from some of these chances that he's been able to create. Yeah. He's looked real good. And, you know, like you said, creating two off the forecheck, like had some really nice moments against the Islanders. Um, we talked about this before in terms of like guys who come into the lineup and you know you, you get those first few games and you're flying around and you know you've got the adrenaline so we'll, we'll see how how he keeps it up here but man I, I've really really liked his contribution so far and um, what are your thoughts on, on Zach Aston Reese coming out I mean he, he's been I think a solid addition for the Leafs this year but maybe just hasn't had the the pop of late that they were hoping for from you know what, what they're expecting from their bottom six yeah well when Keith was asked about it uh, at practice on Tuesday stated that, you know, just for him, there's been some inconsistency with Zach Aston Reese. And I think that's fair. You know, as you said, he's been mostly solid, but I think it, you look at, you know, what Bobby McMahon's been able to do in the minutes that he's been given, and he's pretty much outperformed Aston Reese in nearly every regard thus far. You know, maybe he's not going to be trusted with that, you know, kind of secondary or tertiary penalty killing role that Aston Reese has been playing. But he's helping to drive play a lot more than Aston Reese has. And, you know, it, it seems like th this is more than just, you know, continuing to get a look at McMahon and knowing what they have in Aston Reese. It seems like they're looking for more out of that spot. And, you know, so far, McMahon has been giving them that. Yeah, really, uh, really looking forward to kind of the stretch run here and seeing how things shake out with this bottom six Some interesting implications for this because you know if, if you think that McMahon is going to come in and, and be able to contribute you know yeah. giving you what you want from your bottom six uh, like 
probably spells trouble for Alex Kerfoot, I would have to think at least, uh, you know, even maybe Pierre Engvall, where, you know, McMahon's coming in with a little bit of size and a little bit of that forecheck that you're expecting Engvall to give you. I mean, trade deadline's coming up. We, we will continue to, you know, talk about this stuff as as it approaches. Um, and I know you had a, had tweeted about this today. I mean, what? how do you see this developing with, with these guys? Because, like, obviously, we, we've talked about that, that big ticket for Kerfoot and, and, you know, trying to find a role for him and it, and it seems like we're kind of on the verge of between you know the guys who are coming up from the Marlies and, and the guys who maybe are coming in via trade uh, like it, it's going to be harder than ever to find a role for this guy yeah well I, I it seems like what they're doing is they're kind of trying to establish some bit of sample size with guys like McMahon and now even Joey Anderson who's coming back up and getting into the lineup just to kind of see what the overall drop-off might be you know if it is McMahon or Anderson in place of an Alex Kerfoot on a regular basis, right? Um, I, I think they really like what Kerfoot can do for them in their bottom six. They they like the versatility, the speed, the fact that he can kill penalties, and, and he's he's just really not going to hurt you all that often. But when you're looking at like cost efficiency and things like that, if your best lineup has Alex Kerfoot playing on the fourth line making three and a half million dollars. I think that's going to be the biggest factor. It's going to come down to what other moves do the Leafs have lined up, you know, as the deadline approaches and what balls do they have in the air in terms of improving their roster? And are they going to need that extra bit of money, never mind the roster space to facilitate that. But I think that's going to be the biggest determining factor in what happens with Alex Kerfoot moving forward. Um, If they do have a trade, lined up that's going to make their team better and they need those extra dollars he's the most obvious candidate to be moved out especially with you know how he's been deployed lately i think it's maybe more of a stylistic thing with having him on the fourth line here but uh, the fact remains that mcmahon's getting that spot on the the line with camp and engvall at least you know for the next game and he's going to have an opportunity to run with it i think And, and you know honestly that would be the best thing for the leafs um being able to kind of get the same or similar contributions out of a guy like McMahon or Anderson for a lot cheaper and being able to allocate those dollars to improving their roster elsewhere. Yeah, it would give you a lot more flexibility heading into the deadline, no doubt. Uh, wanted to talk about something that we haven't touched on over the last few weeks, but we've had a number of looks at a five forward power play unit uh, in recent weeks, and I just wanted to know what you thought about it. Well, I was kind of up and down on it, to be honest with you. I was intrigued by it early on, and I thought there were some encouraging signs out of it earlier on. But it, ever since they've kind of reverted to having a defenseman on that unit, uh, mostly Morgan Riley lately, uh, I just feel a little bit safer out there. And that's even with you know all of Mitch Mariner's prowess as a defensive player back there manning the point. It's just not the same when someone's barreling in on him, you know, on a a quick change situation uh, for a shorthanded opportunity. It's not the same as coming in on even Morgan Riley, who, you know, has taken his fair share of criticism for being able to defend the rush and his gap control and things like that. I I still just feel a, a lot safer, you know, for lack of a better term with, Riley out there manning the point. Um, and now I think you, you can kind of get into a discussion about whether he is the best defenseman to be manning the point on that top power play unit. But I, I, I think yeah, moving forward and heading towards the playoffs, I 
don't expect to see the the five forward unit uh, pop its head up again. Yeah, I, I uh, actually when I did like a little bit of university hockey a few years back, uh, St. Mary's University would would run the five man forward power play. And it, I mean, it's, it was a similar thing and obviously a lot more volatile in, in that level of hockey compared to <laughs> compared to the NHL. And it's just like, you know, it, you could really create some incredible looks and, and you know, they could really move it. But then when things fell apart, they fell apart bad. And, and I know I saw a lot of like the sentiment of like, well, is it is it really that much different from having Morgan Riley pinching all the time? Yes. Resounding. Yes, it is <laughs> There's a big difference between just having an NHL defenseman back there versus a, a forward playing defense and, and walking the blue line and stuff too right like that's another aspect of it it's not just like standing stationary at the point and using your vision like mitch mariner is able to do it's that whole ability and it's a a different you know uh, in terms of like spacing what you're used to as as a forward hunting in the offensive spacing the timing everything is yeah yeah there's a lot to it it doesn't maybe look like it it should be that much different but yeah it's it's just the little things and the game moves so quickly at at that level right and it's the the just a little bit littlest bit of hesitation is you know it throws you off and that that's what you get from forwards back there right like they're, they're just they're a little unsure of how to how to attack this this you know oncoming uh forward with the puck and, and you know it's just it's that little hesitation and nhlers will eat that up every time so it's i, I mean it, it was an interesting look I, I i like it as kind of a different uh, way of of you know rolling things out and obviously you've got so much talent how do you allocate it the best um but yeah i mean w- with riley back in the lineup i i feel like it's it's probably uh dead for now it, it, do, do you feel like mo went and, and just started teeing up like 500 one-timers a day when he saw the <laughs> roll this out because it feels like he's been uncorking it a little more since yeah well, i was saying to you before we even hopped on to record like th- that was something that it was always kind of a bugaboo for me with morgan riley was you know we grew up watching brian mccabe and guys like that and you know even dion to an extent just clapping bombs from the point on the power play and, you know, that's something that's always really been missing from Morgan Riley's game. So whenever he does tee one up, it, it kind of makes me perk my ears up and go, hey, yeah. you know, he, he can do it. And it. It seems like he has really been leaning into that the last few games, uh, you know, not to much success so far. But I think he's at least it seems like he's trying to make his decisions a little quicker. I know our buddies, uh, Sammy McKee and JD Bunkus on Leafs talk. They've been giving Riley hell all season long for, you know, he loves to dust off the puck when he gets it at the point. It's never quick. Is it? There's always a, a couple little handles before he makes his next pass or directs it at the net. And I think lately it seems like he's trying to kind of eliminate some of that from his game. But uh, do you think that Riley is the best fit manning that, top power play unit or is there another blue liner on the team that you'd like to see given some run there I, i've liked sandine's looks back there I, I i feel like sandine's just got and i think i've mentioned this before but just a, a little bit more of an aggressive mindset w- with the puck and getting it to the net like like you said you know yeah. riley can uh, you know be a little bit um uh, 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 he settles sometimes right like he'll settle for just yeah. kind of moving it around the top and you know just kind of flicking a wrister in there that's maybe got a 50 percent chance of actually 
actually making it through to the net. Like it, it, there's there's a, la- a bit of a lack of urgency sometimes with Riley's game on the power play that that, that I would like to see kind of dialed up or, or see someone switched in there. And, and I've liked that, you know, Sandine is a little more willing to uncork the one timer and it just seems to be. And he's got a big shot for a little. He guy does. And, and just seems to kind of be, you know, uh, he, he's just very good at uh, kind of shrinking the zone as well. Like That's what I, I was going to say. He it shrinks it strategically. He's not just kind of activating down the wall here and there. It's like he, he understands when there is space in front of him and how to shrink that offensive zone on the power play, which is a big thing. You know, it improves the, the quality of look that you're going to get from the point as well as open up lanes for guys on the flanks and things like that. So, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I think that's something that has kind of stood out with Sandine when he's been given a look on the power play. I think he is the probably the most natural option to go to after Riley but I've been thinking a lot about using Lilligren in that spot lately you know they keep heaping more on his plate and you know he's gobbling it all up and we've seen even at even strength you know his ability to get pucks through from the point and he's got a rocket of a shot maybe the the hardest one-timer amongst the the Leafs defensemen and I, I think he's really intelligent with the way that he moves the puck from the point as well. So I, I know he's already being tasked with quite a lot, you know, getting some bigger minutes and playing on the penalty kill a lot more regularly. But yeah, it's something I've been thinking about lately. I, I'm, just, I'm just, it's kind of gotten a little stale with Riley back there. And maybe, you know, adding him to the second unit kind of helps to spread that talent out a little bit more too, like you were saying before. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you're going to rely on, on Riley for big minutes regardless at five on five, um, you know. Yeah, speaking of being tasked with a lot. Yeah, so, I, I mean, if, if you can if you can ease the burden a little bit on the power play and, you know, shuffle that responsibility around a little more, I, I think that it could help him overall. Um and yeah, like like you said, you know, it's it, he's content to kind of hang around at the top of the zone. And I, I feel like Sandine, it just it's a noticeable like he's just always looking to to kind of uh, squeeze in there a little bit more, get a a little bit of a, a better shooting angle, you know, work things around a little tighter. Um, I, that's that's kind of the big thing for me when when he's on the uh, on the power play out there. So I, I've liked how he's looked. Um now, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Sandine because uh, Timo Meyer, Timo Time, it's become a regular yeah. part of the podcast. It's a segment. Uh, Keith usually... It's become a regular part of Leafs Twitter. <laughs> it has, yeah. <laughs> Keith Keith has been you know beating this drum for a long time here on the show, and you know we're, we're on board here, I think, to, as well at this point, and a lot more yeah. talk in the last week or so of you know what does a Meyer trade look like, and we you know we, we talked a little bit last week about um, you know some some targets and and some potential packages, etc. But uh, I want to keep the Meyer discussion going here, and and you know what, like what, uh, because a lot of the discussion obviously is about what what are the Leafs going to move out? What does the system look like? Can you afford to kind of hamstring yourself further to to you know load up on on rental players or or what have you? Um, and you know we we talked through all of the implications with Meyer being an RFA, but having such a high qualifying offer and you know what what's that going to do the market etc but i just wanted to talk a little bit about what does a deal for meyer look like from the leafs perspective like both from a what you know what would they be willing to move and also what gets it done right because there's going to be a lot of people in this uh you know in these sweepstakes i would assume and yeah 
for good reason. And uh, and not just teams that are looking to load up for the playoffs either, right? Because exactly. as you said, restricted free agent, younger player, like it's going to be a big market for them. It's not going to be limited to just the, the teams looking to set up for a deep playoff run. Yeah, that's for sure. So, um, I mean, the, the conversation, I think, for me starts with, um, you know, you look at one of either Matthew Nyes, who is, you know, you have him as the least top ranked uh, prospect in the system. And the guy everyone does. Yeah, <laughs> everyone does at this point. Um, and, and the guy we were just talking about, um, Rasmus Sandin. And, and to me, I look at like the most likely the most, um, I, I don't know, I guess, in terms of the value that it's going to require, uh, the value that that you know you're going to need to to part with to to bring in a Meyer and um, you know the the and what could you could you part with? We talked last week about you know Topi Niemela. He's kind of the only guy on the right side for the Leafs in the system. They really don't have another great defensive prospect coming up so maybe that kind of takes him out of the mix um matthew nice is obviously a very unique situation i think a lot of people are expecting him to come in and contribute this year um and and i I think that probably the leafs are going to try to do everything they can not to move nice out so so let's let's start instead with rasmus sandin who we were just talking about and um, you know, there's also been talk, of course, about maybe a depth move uh, on the blue line for the Leafs. And it just, I guess, kind of feels at this point like maybe the the role that's there for Sandine and will be there for Sandine after the trade deadline, maybe it makes him a little bit more of a, a likely candidate versus a guy that you're hoping is going to contribute on his ELC over the next few years. Yeah, it's it's a difficult discussion to even really kind of get into because you're talking about such a valuable young piece of the organization but I, I just I can't help but shake this feeling with Sandine that you know even though he's a year younger than Lilligren he, he's still what 22 years old still just kind of getting his feet wet in the NHL I can't help but feel like he's much closer to his ceiling than what a guy like Lilligren is. I just, I, I know Sandine has performed well this year, and I, I don't want this to sound like I'm shitting all over Sandine because I think he is a good player. It's just uh, the the combination of his lack of size, his lack of high end skating ability. Th- th- those are just he's not going to get any bigger, and n- there aren't a lot of guys who drastically improve their skating, you know, beyond the age of 22 either. Not to say that it couldn't happen and not to say that it's been a huge detriment to his success at the NHL level, because I think you look at underlying numbers and things like that, you know, albeit in sheltered minutes, he's put up some good numbers and performed well. I just, I don't know how much more room for growth there is there with Sandine. I don't see a potential top pairing uh, role in his future that I, I think that, you know, he likely tops out as a good second pairing guy. And I think even at that, he's going to need a very specific type of partner to, you know, find success in that role on a consistent basis as his career progresses. Uh, whereas, you know, a, a guy like Willigren, I, I, I think you keep seeing him getting better and he's got, you know, a, a more well-rounded toolbox. He's got better size. He skates better. Uh, I think he, he's just better suited to to withstand the rigors of the, the pro game and playing those heavy minutes. And I, I can't help but 
think of a guy like Rasmus Anderson out in Calgary and what he does for the Flames. I just have been seeing a lot of that in Timothy Lilligren. I've been so impressed with him this season and everything that he's taken on and how he just continues to excel with everything that they put on his plate. And I think that's where, for me, it kind of it makes Sandine feel a little bit more expendable. I know that they, you know, one's left-handed, one's right-handed. They're not direct replacements for one another or, or anything like that. But I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're looking at those two players, and I know you started this with Nyes, but if, if you're, I, I think basically what I'm saying is the way that Lilligren has continued to progress almost makes it easier to justify trading Sandine in the right deal. Now, this isn't me advocating to just, you know, take what you can get for Rasmus Sandine. We're talking about acquiring uh, a game-breaking talent in a guy like Timo Meyer, a guy who checks off basically every box for what this Leafs team needs up front. So it's not to shortchange Rasmus Sandine by any means. I just, I think when you're talking about that kind of addition in combination with how Lilligren has continued to progress, it, it just makes it a little easier to kind of justify considering moving Sandine in a deal like that. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think, um, you know, Nyes is certainly a great prospect and certainly has taken, you know, a, a, a number of big steps since the Leafs drafted him. Um, obviously, everyone's just balking at at the idea of adding Nyes in a deal, um, in any deal. Uh, but, I mean, when you're talking about a guy like Timothy or like, uh, like Timo Meyer. It's so hard because the the ceiling on Nyes is just so hard to pin down. But it's kind of like that mystery box gag off Family Guy, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, Timo Meyer is Timo Meyer, but Matthew Nyes could be anything. He could even be Timo Meyer. Yeah, well, that's it. And and he's <laughs> and he's like the tools are are so intriguing, and he he has like the the every single thing we've seen seems like he could be a, a unique player. But he's probably not going to be like a, an elite elite offensive player is that fair to say like he's if he kind of i feel like the, the best case scenario for matthew nyes is you know a, a 20 to 30 on the higher end but more like a 25 ish goal guy who obviously gives you a lot in terms of all the um all the other aspects of hockey that aren't scoring right like the the physicality the the yeah. battles like he's so good at winning pucks and creating turnovers with his stick and with his body like he he does a lot um but i guess that the question i have is are are we kind of inflating this a little bit because i i look at for example topi niemela who you know we were raving about a year year and a half ago and what a a great performance you know he he was putting together and he's obviously still a very good prospect for the leafs um but I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, is is there an any element here where you look at like capitalizing on a guy who, yes, has obviously been uh, everything the Leafs have kind of hoped for and more as a guy that they selected with the what fifty uh, seventh overall pick. Um, you know, he, he certainly climbs a lot in in a redraft, but like, is he is he a top? 10 guy a top 15 guy in a redraft i don't think he's a top five guy right like this isn't a a top top 
prospect that we're talking about here. So I, I don't think that this is by any means a guy who should be like a, a a deal breaker if you're talking about bringing in someone to the level of a Timo Meyer or, or even maybe a Bo Horvat. You summed it up pretty well, but I, I think the Leafs just have to be really careful with, with this situation. Uh, you, you probably nailed it there. Like if if it's about acquiring uh, a real game breaker like a Timo Meyer or a Bo Horvat. And, you know, maybe even having some kind of assurance in place that there's going to be an extension that you can work out with them that's not going to, you know, turn your entire roster upside down. Then, of course, you consider trading Matthew Nyes. Uh, I, I think it's, it's a no-brainer in that situation. But other than that, you know, if you're looking at straight rentals or, you know, maybe lower-end pieces or maybe pieces that aren't considered to be as impactful or on the star quality level of Meyer or Horvat. You know, we've seen teams get burned with these deals so many times in the past. But I, I think you, you kind of, you're right on comparing him to Nimala as well, because these prospects, they, they develop kind of a shine and a luster as they're tearing things up, you know, immediately after being drafted, as Nyes did, as Nimala did. But it, it's not always something that is such a clear projection to the NHL I think what maybe separates Nyes from a guy like Nimala or even a guy like Robertson who you know had a huge year following his draft year is just those pro level traits that are so apparent when you watch him like you said the, the ability to to win pucks with his body and with his stick he's actually a really effective transition player for a guy who's labeled as like a, a pure power forward or a guy who's just getting in on the forecheck he does a lot of the heavy lifting carrying the puck up ice um he's just got a, a really unique blend of size and skill really actually kind of you know comparable to what Meyer is but getting to your your question kind of about what his ultimate upside is I don't think his ultimate upside is Timo Meyer so I, I I think you know best case scenario a guy like Matthew Nyes is probably you know a, a good complimentary piece on a top six line who can score 20 to 25 goals a year you know chip in on a net front presence on the power play do all those things that help to create possessions and sustain possessions for his team, things like that. But it's, you're talking about Timo Meyer here. Like if that's the cost of bringing a guy like that into the lineup, I think, you know, you'd be silly not to consider it, especially, I know we don't want to get into the whole Dubas thing, but the fact remains that he's on the last year of his contract with this team. So this is kind of like a, a, now or never situation you know if if they're gonna go all in and push their chips in i don't think anything can be off the table they just have to be really really careful with how they decide to to spend these premium assets that they have because they don't have many of them yeah and and that's it right like it's it's how do you be judicious with those assets and play the market right because that's the other thing like we we talked about it last week a bit and it's kind of the thing that i keep seeing from you know a lot of people online talking about the strength uh, of this trade deadline class if that's what you want to call it like the the players that are available here are high high end players the yeah. likes of which are not available at every deadline and like if the 
um, like the, the market can, you know, it can work against you and it can work for you. And, and, you know, obviously like if you're looking at a Ben Sherrod, it's going to work against <laughs> you because there's only so many of these big defensemen and, and people are going to pay way more than they're worth. But if you've got this market with all of these premium players, Horvat, Meyer, O'Reilly, and these guys are, you know, moving, like I'm not inclined to think that we're going to see like a commensurate kind of like um, increase in the trade value. Like, I don't think that we're all of a sudden going to start seeing like these NBA deals, like four, <laughs> four first round picks for Timo Meyer. Like, I feel like it's going to settle in, you know, around where rentals usually kind of get moved for. Maybe I'll be wrong on that. But um, like if, if it's just going to cost you, you know, like a first round pick and Sandine and like maybe another kind of mid-level prospect like you you have to like that that's a deal I like I don't know it's a bigger conversation what would the what would get it done on the shark side right but um you know if it's a if it's a couple of assets when you compare like to you know what you paid for Nick Foligno a couple of seasons ago right like if it costs you like the equivalent of an extra you know first round pick or a level prospect or whatever like that's uh, it's such a, a, a wide chasm between the impact of a Nick Felino and the impact of a Timo Meyer on your lineup, right? It's 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 worth paying up that extra bit, I think. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is going to come down to, you know, I, I expect the Leafs to kick tires in all of these discussions at the very least. But what it's really going to come down to with these uh, big fish in the market, I think, is going to be what it means going forward for the the rest of the lineup i don't foresee kyle dubas you know last year of his contract or not completely depleting the cupboard you know with without knowing that the the player is going to be in the fold moving forward i I just don't see him selling the farm off you know to take one last swing with a with a player here for the last couple months of the season and a playoff run, uh, I, I think it's going to have to be something that makes sense for the organization not only now but in the future. I know that's a tired old trope that gets tossed out by every general manager at every trade deadline and every draft, but it, you know that's the reality of the situation. I, I think, especially with the, the state of the Leafs prospect pool, there isn't a whole lot of high end in there. Yeah, they've got some good depth and a, and a lot of players who you know project to have a shot at the nhl in some capacity but there just isn't a whole lot at the top end there so i i I think they're they're going to be extremely cautious getting involved in this trade market but if it comes down to it and you're able to acquire a a guy like meyer and you know maybe make it work moving forward beyond this season i I think everything's on the table um so we we pretty much got a scouting report on matthew nyes out of you but just uh kind of put a bow on that could you fill us in a little bit on, on how his season's been going of late like it, it seems like he's uh just continuing to, to dominate i mean there, there's no chance that this guy's going back for another year this is yeah this is it he, he he is just uh putting on a show out there yeah well i've seen a lot of people you know even you know daddy frank cerebelli at daily face off had a had a hit last week where it's kind of saying that maybe Matthew Nyes' trade value isn't as high as it was last year, or that maybe he's taken a step back as a prospect. And I just don't see that as, at all. Um, I, I think a lot of times we look at what guys do in the CHL after being drafted, where there's just like such a greater disparity in talent. There's you know such a difference between a a 19 year old player and a 
16-year-old opponent or a 17-year-old opponent, right? You see a guy like Ty Voigt, who is absolutely tearing up the OHL this year. That's why we don't scout based on stat lines and box scores, right? Um, There's a big difference between playing in the OHL as a 19-year-old and, you know, playing NCAA hockey at the age of 19 and 20. Uh, That's basically a men's league. A lot of times, Matthew Nyes is out there against defensemen who are, you know, fully physically developed and you know they're 22 or 23 years old and I think that's maybe the 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 biggest thing that everyone has to remember when they look at his numbers and they don't see this exponential increase that you would see with a a guy like Voigt or Frazier Minton or you know Nick Robertson back in the day with with Nyes I think he's he's taken on more for the Gophers this year he was, you know, a, a prominent figure on their top line last year, but that was with Ben Myers leading the charge. He was arguably the best player in college hockey last year. Um, this year, it's Nyes playing the left wing with a couple of freshmen. Mind you, they're they're very good freshmen in Logan Cooley and Jimmy Snuggerud, who are having a, outstanding seasons of, of their own. But they've been, you know, maybe the top line in college hockey all season. And Nyes has been a huge, huge part of it. He's no longer just a complimentary piece of that line. Like, and I don't even want to say he was complimentary on that line last year because he, he was hugely impactful for the Gophers on their run. But it, I think it's been even more pronounced this year, just how important he is to that line, how much he, he does to help them tilt the ice in, in Minnesota's favor. And he's taken on penalty killing roles this year as well. It, it's he just he continues to round out these little edges in his game. He, he's just so smart in, in tiny little situations, gaining the advantage uh, with his body, uh, taking the right lane to the puck, getting a stick on it before the other guy gets there. Just a lot of little things that help to tilt play for his team. And as I said before, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he's able to do in transition as a puck carrier and a distributor either. So there's a, a lot to like in Nyes' game. Um, it's not hard to squint and see what he might be able to do for the Leafs at the NHL level Uh, I I do think that you know projecting him to come in and step into a top six role in the NHL this year and and be effective there is probably asking a little bit too much and um, you know I think if he can get in on the fourth line and give you anything there uh, towards the end of the season that that would be great especially no one's going to like hearing this uh, in in Leafs Nation but there's a good chance that by the time Matthew Nyes wraps up his college season, the Leafs have like three to five games left on their regular season schedule. So, you know, assuming he does sign and, you know, assuming Minnesota does go on the run they're expected to, the Leafs might not have a whole lot of runway to get a look at him ahead of the playoffs. So kind of banking on him. I know I've seen some people penciling him into their playoff lineup. I think that's a, a, a bit premature and you might be setting yourself up for a little bit of disappointment, but uh, I think all the tools are there for him to come into camp next year and, and really make a name for himself and carve out a spot uh, in this lineup in pretty short order. Yeah, I think that the expectation that like maybe this will be the big left wing addition, like that needs to die. Uh, no, if he no. comes in and gives you what Bobby McMahon has been giving you for the last couple of weeks, that's excellent as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Um going to keep you in scouting mode here uh wanted to talk about the 2023 draft a little bit and top prospects games more night Ooh, top prospects game all right 
wanted to talk about a guy who will not be there and was not at World Juniors because he's Russian, uh, Matvey Michkov, who, you know, I remember you showing me this guy like three-ish years ago, and I, I was just floored by what he was doing at that point. And, you know, you, you kind of expect that it's going to be Bedard versus Michkov at that point. It seems like he's kind of taken a little bit of a backseat. Um, he's, you know, seems like he's fluctuating. He's in that kind of range behind Bedard, but seems more likely to be maybe like a third or fourth pick than the second pick that I might have expected a few years ago. Um, what What's kind of the, the story been with him of late and how much of it, I guess, is just the fact that, you know, obviously all this has gone down with Russia with regards to, you know, how, how those prospects have been treated uh, regarding international tournaments, etc. And then you also have the fact that he's probably not coming right over, obviously a huge talent. But when you've got other huge talents at the top of the draft like you do this year, um, I mean, that's probably a big knock on you if, if you know, you're not expecting to see that production for, you know, three, four, maybe five seasons. I, I don't know what the expectation is here, but uh, what, what are you hearing on Mitchkov? I really don't have a whole lot to add to what you said there. It's been a, a number of factors for Mitchkov that's kind of seen him fall down draft boards, you know, ever so slightly from that uh, second position that he seemed so secure in. Uh, you know, starting with the Russian thing, um, add in the fact that he's under contract with Scott St. Petersburg until 2026. Yeah, that's tough. And he just hasn't played a whole lot this year. So he was just recently loaned, uh, to Sochi in the KHL, uh, actually had a, a pretty good game against the club he's under contract with, which was kind of funny. Uh, he scored at least one goal against them. Um, he's played... 13 games since being loaned to Sochi. He potted four goals and a couple of assists. So, you know, that might not seem like much, but it, you got to remember this is a 18-year-old kid playing in the second best pro league in the world, right? So the, the, the context matters. Uh, in terms of like what I think of him as a talent and where he should go on draft day, I still think there's a, a very good chance that he ends up putting up comparable NHL numbers to Connor Bedard at some point. I just think you, you nailed it when there's that much uncertainty coupled with the fact that there are other really high end pieces that offer a bit more certainty in terms of their NHL timeline and, you know, what they're going to be at the NHL level in guys like Adam Fantilli and Leo Carlson. That's the biggest thing that's knocking Mitch Cobb down the board for me is it, you know, if if I'm looking at pure talent and pure upside, if you're, you're just ranking strictly based on that, I think Matvey Mishkov is the easy second pick, in my opinion. But if I'm the one that's standing up at that podium on draft day, you know, with the second or third overall pick in what is a, a really crucial selection for, for the team I'm running, it would be really hard to pass on a, a couple of big-bodied two-way centers with great offensive skill who can be, compete hard. Uh, again, talking about Fantilli and Carlson here. When the, you need to nail that pick. You, you can't you know, be taking chances with uh, a pick that high in a draft this good. So what, what I really think or what I expect to happen is that Matvey Mitchkov is going to end up in Montreal somehow <laughs> because they're likely to have a couple of high 
uh, first round picks or at least one that's that's pretty high and another one that should be around the top 10 as well. So I think that that they'll be a team who's well positioned to kind of take that swing and be a little patient and, and wait for Mitchkov to come over. And that absolutely terrifies me because this kid is a freak. When you see guys take low percentage shots and you kind of like shake your head or get frustrated, like that's not a thing with Matvey Mishkov. There is no such thing as a low percentage shot with him. He just, he can score from anywhere. Everything is with intent. It's, it's really crazy to watch. He's just a very unique offensive talent in the way that he's able to create chances and capitalize on them. I know there's a long way to go in terms of, you know, his defensive commitment and stuff, but he's just, he is a true generational offensive talent, you know, very similar to Connor Bedard in that regard. Uh, Nice rhyme on my part there. But yeah, I just, I don't, I, I don't see him, you know, not having a spectacular NHL career whenever he does come over. I think this guy is a star from day one when he steps in, just like Bedard's going to be. Yeah, the big question being when will that be? So, and that and that's such a, a crucial question. Like, I I wonder, like how how far do you think he could slip? Because this is so unprecedented. Like, it feels like yeah. you know, even when when there's question marks, you know, the Russia factor, quote unquote. Usually, those guys are saying that they're coming over within a year or so, uh, and they they. Certainly, it's it's not often you see a guy who, who's got this kind of a, a contract commitment before the draft even happens. Like, well, uh, you know, I cut you off there, though. How interesting is it that, you know, in, I believe, year one of that contract extension in what is his draft year, he's already been loaned to another organization. So things might not be so rosy with with St. Petersburg, the team he's under contract with. And, you know, maybe there is something where he's looking to get out of that deal earlier than 2026. That just throws a whole nother wrench into the evaluation process for these scouts leading up to this draft. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think that, you know, that there's a world where he goes number two and, and he doesn't even come to the NHL until Bedard's already on his second contract, right? Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's tough to imagine, but it's uh, that that's, you know, the reality. And, and he, he's going to be the most interesting and the most kind of volatile, um, you know, pick, I would think at the top of the draft in terms of like, could he go two or, or is he going to slip into like the teens or, or something crazy? Like it's, I'll it's, be shocked if he slips yeah. that far. It's just, there's just too much body of work and too much pedigree, you know, even with all those mitigating factors and those concerns about, you know, his size, defensive game, things like that. It's just, you look at what this guy's able to do with the puck on his stick and the way that he's produced at every level. Like, I think one of the first things, I'm just looking at his page right now as I'm talking. I think one of the first things that came up when I was talking uh, about him to you a couple years back was what he did in Russia's U16 league as a 14-year-old. Yeah. You ready for these numbers? Yeah. Remember, 14 years old playing in a U16 league. 33 games played, 77 goals, <laughs> 42 assists, 3.61 points per game. Just like otherworldly stuff. It doesn't matter what level you're talking about when the, the production is that insane, right? And, and you know, he may not have popped with you know insane numbers in russia's you know u20 level just yet but for his age uh, playing at that level his numbers are extremely impressive Uh, i believe he is the highest scoring u18 player in the russian junior league in history so yeah there's just 
a lot of pedigree and a lot of signs that point to you know this guy being a, a true generational talent. Yeah, looking forward to um, seeing what happens with him because yeah, it's just seems like a, a real, real juicy top of the draft this year. So we'll we'll get more uh, more reports out of you as as we get closer to it. Um, all right, let, let's let's wrap it up there. We'll have our, our resident cool guy back next week. I think. Yeah, a little bit under the weather. Trying to deal with some work commitments at the same time. I don't envy him, but uh, we'll, we'll be happy to have him back next week. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Leafs have the Rangers on Wednesday night. A little bit of national TV action there on TNT. And uh, then it's the, the Sens on Friday. A rare Saturday off this week, Nicholas. Yeah, that's going to be strange. Um, you know, With Ottawa coming up on Friday and, and the run that Samsonov's been on, what do you do with the, with the next two starts? Uh, how do you distribute them? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I, I I feel like I'd probably go to Samsonov against the Rangers. I, I mean, I guess I, I you know they, they've they've stuck with that him. would make I, it five in a row for him. Yeah, Ooh. it would. And that, it, it would, and I, I it's it's almost hard to imagine, but it's also kind of hard to imagine. Like if if you're giving him a little run, you know, you give him four in a row, and then you go back to Murray for the the, the big national game, right? I, I, and you know, you've got a little bit of the and against his old team, right? I feel like they're going to want to give Murray the, the Ottawa game. Yeah. So and, and they're probably. You know, Samsonov has played so well. You're not going to want to have him out of the crease for for too long. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they distribute these next two starts. Uh, I'm saying Samsonov on Wednesday against the Rangers again. He's earned it. Yeah, that's really one of the big uh, storylines I, I think going forward here. We're going to continue to talk about Timo Meyer for roughly 20 minutes per episode <laughs> for the next uh, month plus. But uh, secondarily, uh, the goaltending uh, situation and, and the decision to be made there heading into the playoffs too. That's that's also going to be an interesting storyline. Yeah, uh, you know, in a season that we thought was going to be dull and boring, it, it seems like there, there's plenty to discuss and hold their attention and plenty to agonize over as we head into another agonizing playoff series with Tampa Bay. (laughs) 